Good morning. It's good to see you all. And it's good to be here. It is always an honor to be able to communicate God's word and to uh, be his spokesman. So thank you for letting me come and share with you guys a little bit this morning. One thing I do know though, so far is that you guys eat pretty well. <laughs> I, I can tell. We did uh, brunch at the, at the Buckner's yesterday, and, and if they ever do a restaurant, I want to be the first guy in line. <laughs> and last night, you guys hosted us, and we had a game night and, and desserts, and uh, man, it was awesome. So thank you. It's good. Yeah. I saw you here last night. I remember. So I've been a part of the CMA and affiliated with the CMA for over 25 years. And uh, I am from the other side of the mountains. My, my wife and I and, and kids, we all grew up on the west side of the mountains. And I was a part of uh, CMA church over there, Smoky Point Community Church, for many years uh, in volunteer roles from audio ministry to high school youth group to mission trips and uh, got to know uh, President Stumbo pretty well as well. So that's where he was. One of his stops was there. And so I've been a part of the CMA for a long time. And I, I can't tell you this is, this is the only domination that I've ever really felt like you were my people. And uh, so, so thank you. It's good to be here. It really is. So um, let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, I just thank you for this time and this opportunity to share your word. And God, I ask that I would get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit move. God, the words that, that come out of my mouth, would they be your words? God, we ask for open ears and hearts and minds this morning, Lord. God, we look to you. God, you are the answer to all of life's worries and all of life's problems, God. And so I ask this morning that you would, uh, your Holy Spirit would move and move in a mighty way. We ask for... Uh, clarity. We ask for wisdom. We don't want to know more, Lord, but we want to walk out as changed individuals, God. Change our hearts and our minds, and Lord, we ask that we would, each one of us would look more like Jesus each and every day. God, honor that request. Thank you for this time. Be with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. One, one of the things that I'm convinced of in this life is that God's idea of victory is sometimes different than our idea of victory. One of my favorite movies is Chariots of Fire. I, I turn it on so often that my wife will often either roll her eyes or actually walk out of the room when I'm watching it yet again. I love Chariots of Fire. It's this movie of great victory, but the victory doesn't always look like the sort of victory that humans have in mind. One of, the, one of the individuals in the show is the Flying Scotsman, Eric Little. And he's the fastest man in the UK. And he finds his way to the 1924 Olympics, 1924 Summer Olympics. And his, his race is the 100 meters. But he finds out that he's got a race on Sunday. And being a man of God, being a man of faith, he says, there's one thing I don't do. I don't work and I don't race and I don't play on Sunday. He was convicted that he is to keep the Sabbath. So here you've got Eric Little, surefire gold medal winner, ambassador for the country, 
well-known, signs autographs everywhere he goes, and he's got the country, and he's got the Olympic Committee coming at him and saying, can you reconsider? What do you think about doing it different? Our idea of victory is that you would run on Sunday, is what they said, Eric. And Eric said, oh no, I am a man of conviction. I'm going to listen to the Lord. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. He faced scrutiny. He faced rejection. He was dressed down by the Olympic Committee. Again, this is a man that had a huge future as an athlete in the UK and the Scotland. They had big plans for, for Eric Little. But he gave up all of that to pursue God's race. Just a few short years later, he was on the mission field. He left all the notoriety. He had left everything behind to pursue God's race for him, to pursue kingdom victory. He spent 20 years ministering in, in China at a, at a boys' school. But as the world looked in, as, as Scotland looked in, it wasn't the sort of victory that the people had in mind. But he was enduring God's race. He was running the race for God's kingdom. He knew that real victory in God's kingdom was running the race that he had before him. And today we are a full seven days from Resurrection Sunday. We sit here on Palm Sunday, and this morning we're going to look at a passage of one of the four passages of, of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the, on the back of a colt. This is an account that's found in all four of the Gospels, but this morning we're going to look at what Mark has to say. I love what Mark has to say because he's got a lot of rich theology and some other nuggets that some of the other writers didn't include. And so this morning we're going to look at Mark. So if you brought your Bibles with you, Mark 11, 1 through 11. We're going to look at a passage where, again, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem and ultimately has victory over sin, right? So Mark 11, 1 through 11. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Bible here this morning. NASB. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say this, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they, the disciples, went away. They found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them just as Jesus had said, and they gave the disciples permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple area. And after looking around at everything, 
he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Now I want you to close your eyes for a minute and imagine this scene. You can almost imagine the, the excitement, the, the murmuring. You can almost feel the, the heat and the dust. You can almost feel the, the wind. You can feel the excitement of the people. Again, they're pressing up against one another. This would have been potentially thousands of people jammed in this one-mile stretch of Jerusalem waiting for Jesus. People of all ages, again, they were talking, they were murmuring, there was a buzz, they were no doubt readying their, their palm branches for this moment. After hundred, hundreds of years of anticipation, they were saying to themselves, here comes Jesus, here comes the Messiah, finally, our time has come. You know, for the Jews, they were anticipating Jesus to come in, for the Messiah to come in and make all things right, a new land, a new kingdom one that would help them overthrow the oppression and the tyranny of the Roman government. This is what the people were waiting for. Finally, hundreds of years of anticipation, and he's finally arrived. You can imagine the excitement again of the people in this moment. We've been to some parades as a family, and there's always that incredible excitement. Isn't there? If you have kids, is there going to be candy? Are the pirates going to be there? They're, they're always scary. They even scare me to this day. But you can feel the excitement that was happening. Again, as people of all ages were talking and murmuring, there was this nervous anticipation in the air. Well, what's going to happen? You know, the crowds following Jesus and the crowds surrounding Jesus, this was not a new sight. This was not brand new. Everywhere Jesus went, he gathered a crowd. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed the thousands. Jesus often gathered a crowd. People encountered the one true God of the universe and he gathered people as a result. So there are three main reasons why there were thousands of people potentially on this one mile stretch of Jerusalem. One, the Passover feast. So this was the annual Passover feast in which the Jews were celebrating the the fact that way back in the, the book of Exodus that God passed over the firstborn Hebrews, right? So they were there celebrating this Passover feast. So you had the Jews. You had Jesus' followers, right? Kind of that inner core. Those, you had the 12, of course, and then the, the next concentric circle of followers. You had all of his, um, again, the, those that, that would have been with him. And ju- just prior in the book of Matthew and Mark, I, I won't turn there, but in the book of Matthew and Mark, Jesus just had healed, so just prior to writing in the town, he had just healed two blind men, one of them by the name of Bartimaeus. And so, and then prior to that, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so there were people following Jesus, again, for a number of reasons. One, they were there for the Passover feast. Two, they were these core followers of Jesus Christ. They were his disciples. And then three, People that were curious about him. Who is this guy? Maybe he'll heal me. Maybe this. Maybe he'll do something in a miraculous way for me as well. So despite all these dynamics, I want to paint this picture. You had an incredible amount of people. And there was excitement in the air. And for those watching Jesus enter the city, this was not a typical kingly entrance. This was not a typical kingly entrance of a king setting up an earthly throne, was it? He rode 
on the back of a borrowed donkey. Actually, a son of a donkey. It wasn't even a donkey. It was a colt. Kings would have come in with mighty horses and chariots. If Jesus was coming to set up an earthly kingdom, he didn't come with mighty power and force. He came to set up a kingdom of a different sort. Again, Jesus rode on the back of a borrowed colt. Verse 2 says just that. And it's never been written before. That's an interesting part of the text, isn't it? Yeah, really interesting part of the text. Jesus didn't, didn't have a donkey, he didn't have a horse, so he had to borrow one. He comes in the most humblest of ways. Different than King David, right? You think about King David and, and how he would have come after a, mil, a great military victory. You know, King David would have come with chariots and horses and there would have been just a great show of military power. And, but Jesus comes in an entirely different way. He comes as the one true king, but yet on the back of a borrowed colt. He, he rides into town, and, and it's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. The prophet Zechariah said, about 500 years prior to Jesus riding into town, Zechariah wrote this. He said, Rejoice, Israel. Behold, your king will come to you. He is just and having victory, lowly riding on the colt, and will speak peace or shalom to the nations. So here you've got Jesus writing and fulfilling what the, the prophet Zechariah wrote 500 years plus. And then the Jews knew this. The people knew this as they watched and they listened. This is it. Our time has come. Here's the Messiah. Finally, he's here. You know, Jesus announced his kingship and rode into town in, in the same way that he came to earth. As a humble servant. You know, God could have called down heavenly hosts and Jesus could have set up his kingdom by force and he could have kicked Pilate out and Herod, and, but he didn't do that. He came as a servant in the most humblest of ways. You know, Jesus came to set up a, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom of forgiveness, a kingdom of peace. That's what Zechariah says. Behold, he's coming on a borrowed colt, but he's setting up peace. So you can imagine all these dynamics to get all these thousands of people that are waiting for this new kingdom to arrive. Yet he does. But God had victory of an entirely different sort in mind. You know, Jesus came to set up the kingdom in the hearts of God's people. He didn't come to set up a kingdom and overthrow the Romans didn't come to crush their tyranny and their oppression and do something entirely different. He came, up, he came to set up the kingdom in the hearts of God's people. I've always found it really interesting in, in the Bible when, when Jesus says, he says this more than, more than once, he says, keep my works and keep my miracles quiet. Don't tell anybody. Isn't that an interesting thing? Here's the most important man to ever walk the earth, the most important message in human history, ever in any, any history, right? And the Savior, the Messiah, God's one and only Son, God in the flesh, walking the earth, but yet he says, keep it quiet. Interesting. There's a couple dynamics happening there. One of, you know, Jesus says, one even says this, he says, my, my time has not come. Jesus didn't want interference from the Roman and, and, and the Jewish 
in, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin and the, the religious. And so he knew he had more work to do on the earth. But yet also, you know, Jesus says, it's not about me. It's not about the miracles. It's about God's kingdom. You know that Jesus always pointed to God's kingdom. There is salvation through God. But, but yet in this moment, as Jesus is riding on the back of this borrowed donkey, he says what? He says, my time has come, and the time is now. He didn't say, keep, keep it quiet, don't tell anybody. He said, my time has come, and it is now. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. There's some key words I want to talk about this morning. There's great urgency in Jesus' words here. Verse 2 says, Jesus says, go. He tells the disciples to go. Go in the opposite town and you will immediately find a colt. And verse 3 says, and when I'm done with that colt, I will immediately bring it back. When I'm done, I want you to go, immediately find the colt, and then when I'm done, I will immediately bring it back. And if anybody asks you, tell them the Lord has need of it. He's not being coy about who he is, is he? He's, he's saying, again, the, the time is now. I am him. I am the Lord. The Lord has need of it. For Jesus, he's letting everybody know the secret is out. That his time has come. The Messiah has arrived. He's here. This is it. And again, these are, these are clues to the urgency of Jesus in this moment. The go, the immediately. The Lord has need. I have need of what you have. Anybody ask, you tell them the Lord has need of it. And Luke 19.10 reminds us that, of Jesus' mission. And Jesus says this, he says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And that is his mission. So as he's riding in the back of this borrowed colt into Jerusalem, that's his mission, to seek and save the lost. This victory, I believe, that the Jews and the people watching would have had in mind looks very different than what Jesus came to do. An entirely different sort of victory and brand of victory. So you can imagine, again, the scene where the Jews are they're pressing all around him, but they're worshiping him in word, but also in deed as well. They're worshiping Jesus through their words, but they're worshiping Jesus in their actions. And they're, and they're giving Jesus what is really some of their most pride possessions. Look at verse 7 8 again. The disciples put their, their cloaks on the back of the colt for Jesus. So you had the disciples doing that, giving Jesus really what would have been, again, some of their most prized possessions. And then you had the Jews giving Jesus their cloaks as well, laying down along the road their cloaks. They're, they're rolling out the red carpet, in essence, right? You think about that from a... Hollywood or VIP experience, you know, you guys kind of rolled out the red carpet for us a little bit. So, um, 
but they're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. I'm sure you've seen in the old movies when a young man and a young woman are on a date, and he's very chivalrous, and he lays his coat, of course, over the mud puddle for his you know, nice young woman, right? Kids, you can ask your parents or grandparents about that, but, uh, you know, something. I don't know if I, did I ever do that for my wife? Ever lay out the, put my coat over? Hmm. I wanted to. My heart, I, in my heart I did. So again, what was, what's happening here is that the people are laying their cloaks. Again, the Jews put their cloaks on the colt and the larger group of, of worshipers would have laid down their cloaks along the road. I want to talk about something else real quick. So one of the versions I came across here recently uses instead of cloak, prayer shawl. And prayer shawl changes the meaning a little bit. I want to talk about that just a little bit. So for the prayer shawl, it was a garment that a, a Jewish man would have worn, and it would have been his most outer garment. It would have been something that he would have worn that reminded him of his adherence to God's commands and God's law. So it represented, you identified yourself as a Jewish man, but it reminded you of the commands that you follow. Um, one of the commentaries I read, there were 612 religious Jewish laws that Jewish men would have followed in the first century. And needless to say, most of those are man-made, right? But Jewish men would have worn this. It would have been their most outer garment, almost like a poncho. They would have worn over their cloak to keep them warm, but, but it would have been something that was what I would say would be their most prized possession, they didn't go into a closet full of prayer shawls and cloaks. They didn't have that. They maybe had one if they were lucky. And so here you have individuals, again, most likely Jewish men, laying down their most prized possession in this moment as Jesus rides through on this borrowed colt. If you go back to the the example of Elijah, as he is taken up into the, the chariot, he leaves behind him his cloak, probably a prayer shawl, leaving it to Elisha. Uh, the mantle is another term that, that it, you'll hear that term, but what it really was, it was this cloak that was this submission. I, my time is done, is what Elijah said. It's your time now, Elisha. I was reminded of Paul's words, where Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, take off. Or lay aside the old man. Put on Jesus Christ. Put on Christ's likeness. So there's this taking off of the old. And again, putting on. And and I think you have to look a little bit into the hearts of Jesus' followers along this road a little bit. But, But I want you to again reflect on what these cloaks would have represented. They would have represented safety, security, identity. They were, again, they weren't people with closets full of cloaks. This this was an act of absolute allegiance and worship to Jesus in this moment. They were taking off their most prized possession and giving it to him and saying, I submit to you, Jesus. I think the people met the one true king on that road. And And there was no other option other than to give him what they had. The book of Acts is that when the people were met with Peter's 
words about Jesus. They were cut to the heart, and I think the Jews in the same way in that moment were cut to the heart, and they absolutely gave Jesus their most prized possessions, these things that represent safety and security. And they represented the old way to get to God, right? The old covenant was through God's commands, through adherence, through adherence to the law. But we know the new covenant, Ephesians reminds us of this, only by grace are you saved through Jesus Christ, not of works. And so in this moment, the Jews along the road gave Jesus everything. Worship through their words, worship through their, their most prized possessions. I think they were saying, I surrender to you, Jesus. You are the king. They absolutely said, you alone are king. I owe you my allegiance. I submit to you. And the implication for us is no different. The implication for us is no different. Now, if we're going to follow Jesus, we submit to him. We are to submit to him with everything that we have. Our, our identity is his, our things. When we decide to follow Jesus, we say, everything I own is yours, Jesus. In addition to their cloaks, Mark says... The Gospel of Mark, the passage we just read, he talks about leafy branches. But in the book of John, John writes that they were palm branches. And these palms were represented, well, they would have been used for royalty, right? The, the palms would have been used for royalty as kings came into town. The people grabbed palm branches and laid them at Jesus' feet, almost saying, we're, we're not worthy. We submit to you. We give everything to you. Yeah, I'm giving their, they're giving their cloaks, their prayer shawls, their palm branches. And what these actions signified was a position of their heart. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants our hearts. He wants, our, he wants our everything. In, in Revelation, John says this. This is, this is what heaven's going to be like. Revelation 7, 9. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And our passage this morning is a foreshadowing of just that. Where every tribe, every nation, everyone who's ever called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the Jews in Jerusalem, bow before him, surrender to him, with palm branches in our hands. Laying them down at his feet in complete worship. So along this road in Jerusalem, as Jesus rides this borrowed colt, the people were struck to the heart in meeting the one true king of the universe. And again, they gave up every bit of what they had in that moment. Their most prized possessions worshipped him through words and action. 
And it's the same thing. When we decide to follow Jesus, we forfeit our agenda. We forfeit building our own kingdoms. We forfeit building our own thing. We build his kingdom. The only thing we endeavor to is to build God's kingdom. And we're temporary stewards of all the things that we own in this life. John writes that all gifts come from above our Heavenly Father. Our homes, our jobs, our bank accounts, our families, our children, this building. We're just temporary stewards of all that we see. Just temporary caretakers. And I, and I think part of what Jesus wanted to do is he wanted, to, he wanted the people to loosen their grip on what they had in that moment. Jesus would give it all to you. They took off the old, the old man, the old way, and submitted to Jesus. Jesus, he doesn't really need our, our doesn't need our money and our stuff and our, he wants to know that we'd be willing to give up everything for him. He wants our absolute allegiance, does he not? Yes. He wants to know that everything that we hold on to tightly in this life that we'd be willing to give it to him at any cost everything is his anyway one of the things that I was struck, of, struck with in this passage is this I think in this passage Jesus reminds us that he cares more about our hearts than he does our circumstances. Again, you had the Jews surrendering their, submitting to Jesus, both in action and words in this moment. But listen, listen to the words of the people in verse 9. Look at verse 9 again real quick. The people quote a portion of, of Psalm 118. And they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When you, when you dissect that, that word Hosanna, the first part of that word means save us, deliver us. And the second portion of that word in the original language means now please. The Anna, Hosanna. Save us. Now, please. And putting that together, you've got this desperate cry. Save us now. I'm not sure I can take it any longer. I'm not sure I can do this. You can hear the desperation and the cry. In fact, John, as he writes about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, he says the people came from in the street and were crying out. They ran to the street crying out. So listen to the, think about the desperation. You can, you can hear it in those words. I'm not sure how much longer we can hold on. If you've ever been in a place of desperation, you can imagine how those people may have felt, right? One of, one of my frequent prayers in this life is God help. I pray that one all the time. I think my wife probably prays it more often, but I certainly pray, God help. It's the most simplest prayer that we can pray. 
That's what they were saying in this moment. It was a cry of, of, of complete dependence upon him. God, save us, or save us, now, please. You can hear the urgency in their words. And their cry was for a different set of circumstances. Their, their cry was for a new earthly kingdom, is what they were crying out for. Save us from the Romans. Build a new kingdom. I can't do this. They wanted a king like King David. And King David was the, the, the mightiest military king in Israel history, and, and rightly so. They wanted Jesus to come in and, and set up a new earthly throne, kick the Romans out, and set up a new throne. Except Jesus didn't do that. He didn't save the people in, in, in the precise way that they would have wanted he didn't come and crush the Romans. He didn't come and move over. That's my throne. He didn't come with great military victory. He didn't kick out King Herod. and he, he set up an entirely different kingdom, didn't he? He set up a heavenly kingdom. As Jesus stood before Pilate in John 18.36, Jesus says, Well, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my supernatural army of angels would never have let you arrest me. My kingdom is from another place. Jesus says, my kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. You know, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he's five days from going to the cross. And as he rode on this borrowed colt, you had, you had the twelve, you had his mother, you had Mary, you had Martha, you had his, his, you know, Jesus was counselor, he was teacher, rabbi, he was their son, their friend, their provider, their servant. But yet, five days from entering Jerusalem, he's going to be hung on the cross. And when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't save, he didn't save the people from their earthly circumstances, he saved Humanity from the punishment of sin. You know, there's no limitation to Jesus' power as healer. He has authority over all that we see. He is sovereign. He can heal. He does heal. I've experienced healing in my own life. He is provider. He, one day he'll return. He'll make all things right. He could make all things right right now if he wanted in a blink of an eye. But yet, as Jesus' followers, as the Jews watch from afar, here's Jesus going to the cross. No doubt there was human disappointment and letdown. Wait, what happened? This, this wasn't the sort of victory that I expected. This wasn't it. And I think what Jesus is saying with his victory on the cross and as he rode into town is, uh, I'm less concerned about your circumstances and more concerned about your heart. Who am I to you? The question they asked Peter, who do you say I am? That's the question you would ask all of us. Who do you say? I hear that. Who would they say? Who do you say I am? I want to read a brief snapshot of, of a missionary by the name of 
Adoniram Judson. You guys have probably, you probably guys, you know Judson or have heard of Judson. But in his early 20s, Judson was a missionary and he left America for India. And things didn't go as planned. He was stuck at sea with his wife, his pregnant wife, for three weeks. She gave birth on a ship outside of India. India wouldn't let him in. Their child didn't make it. Judson, he shared the gospel for six full years, every day, all day long. And he claims that he's not sure anybody actually came to Jesus over that six-year period. But he kept perspective. He kept preaching. He kept loving. He kept serving. And he didn't give up. At one point in his journey as a missionary, he was chained to the floor, to the ground, with his back and shoulders and legs flat to the ground. Chained flat to the ground as a punishment for being a missionary in India. His funds dried up. You can imagine that his, the people that gave to his, his mission, they heard about all this and said, there's nothing going on. Judson's a flop over there. So all of his financial support dried up. He already lost a child. Eventually his wife and three other children would die in Burma. He got remarried His second wife and children also passed away on the mission field. But he didn't give up. He stayed the course. He was faithful. He knew that God had called him to something entirely different, a different sort of victory. And today there are 3,700 churches in Burma that can trace their beginnings back to the work that Judson did. You know, for Judson, following Jesus didn't add up on paper. If he looked at his circumstances on paper, he would have said, this was an absolute failure. If he he looked at God's blessings in 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 a way which he equated safety and comfort, he would have felt like a failure. He could have made the case, oh man, I must be outside of God's will because I've lost one wife, I've lost a second wife, I've spent much time in prison, lost his family, lost his safety, lost his comfort. He lost everything that he really held tightly to in this life. And the more I journey in this life, the more I kind of see the same thing. I think Jesus is more concerned about our hearts than he is our circumstances. You know, following Jesus doesn't mean it's a a trouble-free existence but it's an existence of supernatural peace, is it not? I still find myself surprised at times when when life doesn't go according to to plan, right? But God, I'm I'm following you. I'm doing all this stuff in your name, but man. And following Jesus doesn't always add up on paper, does it? From a worldly perspective, following Jesus doesn't always add up. You know, all throughout the Bible, all throughout human history, in my journey, and in, in journeys that I 
hear and know from other followers of Jesus Christ, we see that I think God is more concerned about our hearts than our circumstances. First Peter says this, Beloved, my people, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test. You as some, don't be surprised, it's not something strange that's happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You know, when we have in mind God's glory in the middle of life's trials, it changes our perspective, doesn't it? When we realize and recognize that, that God can bring glory in and through all things for those who love him and are called according to his plan and his purposes. You know, Paul reminds us that his power is made perfect in our weakness and we can take joy in such lowly circumstances. There's no limitation to God's power. We say that, we know that. He's the ultimate healer, provider, physician, comforter. We pray for deliverance on this earth, do we not? We pray for healing. God is the one true healer, the only healer. But again, I believe Jesus is more concerned about our hearts than our circumstances. And as Jesus rode through town on the back of a borrowed donkey, I think he was telling the people that very thing. He was saying, my kingdom is not of this earth. My throne is not of this earth. Jesus came to set up a throne in the hearts of God's people. He came to set up a throne in your heart as well. So I can imagine, you know, as, as the people watch Jesus riding into town, it hardly seemed like a victory five days later as the Messiah, the one true king, hung on the cross. But yet Jesus' death on the cross is the greatest victory ever experienced. The greatest victory. You know, Jesus rode into town willingly. He knew what was around the corner. He knew that he was to go to the cross. He knew he was going to suffer and die. He knew he was going to be afraid in front of Pontius Pilate, the jeering of the people. He knew the pain. He was going to endure the beating. He knew the, the crucifixion that, he was, that, that God had before him. But he did all that anyway. On the back of a borrowed colt. He did that because he loves you, because he loves me. He did that just for you. Right, right there in your Bible, I imagine it probably says triumphal entry. Right there. And the word triumphal is kind of interesting. I began to kind of reflect on that a little bit. And uh, the word triumphal or triumph is, is celebration after victory. It's not only victory, but it's celebration that follows a victory. And this morning, I believe we can celebrate the victory that Jesus had on the cross for your sin, for my sin. He paid the ultimate price because he loves you. So this morning, we can triumph. I want to remind you that no matter the 
circumstances, even if your circumstances don't add up on paper, even if you're facing some challenging circumstances right now, I hope that you can find victory as you look to Jesus on the cross. There's no greater victory. He went to the cross, paid for your sin, paid for my sin. And Jesus, Jesus triumphed over sin. He's already won the war. One day Jesus will return and set all things right. We find ourselves in the here and the now. I want to remind you that even if you're having a difficult time finding victory in your life today, I believe together as God's people we can say we, can, we have victory. Jesus has already won the war. He's already paid for our sin. The battle's already won. We know the ending. Hebrews 12 reminds us of this. That with Christ-like endurance, we can run the race set before us. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the race that we can run. And we can use Jesus as our ultimate example. If he willingly endured the cross, I can certainly willingly endure what this life has to offer. Paul says, death, where is your sting? Kind of scoffs at death, doesn't he? Yeah. To die is to gain is what Paul says. So this morning, I hope that we can celebrate and triumph together and say, even though life is challenging, there's no end to the struggle at times, that we can find triumph in this life, and it comes through Jesus Christ on the cross. And maybe today you can find joy. You can find peace, knowing that, again, that Jesus wrote a borrowed colt just for you. That's how much he loves you. He took your sin. He took your punishment. So that whoever calls upon his name may live in eternity with him. And that's real victory. That's real victory. Sometimes victory in this life looks very different. Like Eric Little. There are many others that looked on the outside and said, that isn't the sort of victory that we would have expected. And I think the Jews probably did the same thing. But Jesus says, I have come to set up an entirely new kingdom. A kingdom in your heart. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your Savior. He wants everything. Everything that you hold tightly to in this life. He wants it all. He is worthy of our praise. It's all his anyway. We're just temporary borrowers of what he's graciously given us. So this morning I want to remind you that Jesus desires to set up a kingdom in your heart. He, king of the universe, he rode a borrowed colt. Again, he was falsely charged. He was beaten. He died a sinner's death. Died in between two criminals. He loves you so much that he did that all for you all the way to the cross on your behalf. So today I think we can triumph in that together.
Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me close in prayer. God, I thank you that we have victory through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, no matter what circumstance is happening in our life, God, we know that you paid for our sin. You paid for our past, our present, and our future sin on the cross, God. God, we have victory in that. God, your word says that all who call upon your name shall be saved, God. As we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, we shall be saved. And God, that's a simple prayer that we can pray right now. God, we give you our best. God, we give you everything. It's all yours anyway, God. And God, we want to be people that live with open hands. Following you, Lord, means giving you everything. And in the here and the now, God, while we live in an imperfect world, God, I ask that you would continue to set up a kingdom in our hearts. God, we know that you're more concerned about our hearts and our circumstances. God, we look to you. We love you. We praise you, God. And today, when we, as we walk out these doors, we'll be reminded that, that you, on the cross, God, hung on our behalf. And that was a, the ultimate triumph, God, was you on that cross. We celebrate that. We look to you. We just thank you for who you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.